Welcome to Reading to Kids podcast. I'm your host, Jenna. And I'm your host, Peyton. And we're here to read to you or with you. We know that sometimes moms and dads don't always have the time or the motivation to read to their kids each night, and we know how important it is. So, on those nights that you're not in the mood, we're going to do it for you. Can't wait to read with you. Good job, Peyton. High five. I know it feels weird when I have the bigger one in my the bigger phone in my how big my hand is compared I know it's weird I know okay a series of unfortunate events look away look away you're not singing with me it will you have to just go back okay Okay. book the 10th the slipper slope chapter 11 all right let me get to the end of this I have a cheat sheet okay all right, chapter 11. I wish the chapter had the name of like what happens in the chapter. So we kind of have like a cheat sheet now. Okay, if you ever look at a picture of somebody. Oh, do you want me to like airdrop it to you for that? Yeah. Okay, sorry guys. Mm, my child needs something. Oh, you closed it out. Oh, here we go. My child's doing some art while I'm reading. Oh, never mind. Found it? Yeah. Okay. It just- False alarm. False alarm, people. And I just ate an ice cream bar that was like a popsicle that was not worth the calories. I'm not eating any more of them. They were not very good. Bummer, dude. I know. It was like, it was from Whole Foods and it was Greek yogurt and mango. And I was like, that is going to be good. Number one, it wasn't as sour as it should have been. And number two, the picture showed, for sure showed actual pieces of mango. And this was like pure, I don't know. It's not good. Don't get it. Don't waste your money on it. It was like five bucks for four. Boo. Boo Boo-hoo. Boo-hoo is right. Okay. Chapter 11. If you have ever taken a picture of someone who has just had, who has, has just had an idea, you might notice a drawing of a light bulb over the person's head. Of course, there's not actually a light bulb hovering over the air when oh, hovering in the air when someone has an idea. But the image of a light bulb over someone's head has become a sort of a symbol of thinking, just as the image of an eye, sadly, has become a symbol for crime and devious behavior rather than integrity, the prevention of fire, and being well read. As Violet and Quigley climbed back down the slippery slope of the frozen waterfall, their fork assistant climbing shoes poking into the ice with each step, they looked down and saw, but the last light of the sun setting, the in the fi- wait, in the last light of the sun setting, the figure of Klaus. He was holding a flashlight over his head to help the two climbers find their way down, but it looked as if he had just had an idea. He must have found the flashlight in the wreckage. Quigley said, "It looks like." The one Jacques gave me. I hope he finds enough information to decode the verbal fridge dialogue, he said. And Violet said and tapped the candelabra between her below her feet. Be careful here, Quigley. The ice feels thin. We'll have to climb around it. The ice has been less solid on our way down, Quigley said. That's not surprising, Violet said. We poked a great deal of it with our fork. By the time false spring arrives, the whole slope will probably be half frozen. How are they going to climb back up? Why are you asking? Because I'm just saying, like, their whole plan is, like, stressing me out. Okay. By the time false spring arrives, Quigley said, I hope that we'll be on our way. It's not like I can tell you right now because, like, 
That's true. On our way to the last safe place. Me too, Violet said quietly as the two climbers said no more until they reached the bottom of the waterfall and walked carefully across the frozen pool along the path Klaus shone with his flashlight. I'm so glad you guys returned in one piece, Klaus said, shining his flashlight in the direction. Ow! Oh, sorry. Oh, my, oh my gosh. Ow, that was my shin. Gee, that's going to leave a bruise. Klaus, <laughs> it's fine. But they found, but Violet found, wait, no, shining flashlight entrance, but uh, 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 it looked like this slippery, wait, hold on. I'm so glad you returned in one piece, Klaus said, shining the flashlight in the direction of the, of the dining room remains. It looked like a very slippery journey. It's getting cold, but if we sit behind the library entrance, we'll be away from much of the wind. But Violet was so eager to tell her brother about who they found at the top of the peak, she could no longer wait. They, she could not wait another moment. It's Sunny, she said. Sunny's at the top. It was her who was signaling us. Sunny, Klaus said with his eyes. How did she get up there? Is she safe? Why didn't you bring her back? Well, she is safe, Violet said. She's with Count Olaf, but she's safe. Has he harmed her, Klaus said? Violet shook her head. No, he's just making her do all the cooking and cleaning. But she's just a baby, Klaus said. Not anymore, Violet said. We haven't noticed Klaus, but she's growing up quite a bit. She's really too young to be in charge of all the chores, of course, but sometimes during the hardships we've been through, she stopped being a baby. Well, she's old enough to eavesdrop, Quigley said, and she's already discovered who burned down VFD headquarters. They're two terrible people, a man and a woman, who have quite an aura of menace. Violet said, even Count Olaf is a little afraid of them. Well, what are they all doing up there, Klaus said. Well, they're having some sort of villainous meeting, Quigley said. We heard them mention something about recruit a recruitment plan and a large net. That doesn't sound very pleasant, Klaus said. And there's more, Klaus, Violet said. Count Olaf has the Snicket file, and, he's, and he found out about the secret location, the last safe place where VFD can gather. That's, where, that's why Sunny stayed up there. If she overhears where the place is, we'll all know where she's going to meet the rest of the volunteers. I hope she manages to find out, Klaus said. Without that piece of information, all I've discovered is useless. What have you discovered, Quigley asked. I'll show you, Klaus said. And he led, led the way to the ruins of the library where Violet, could, where Violet could see he'd been working. His dark blue notebook was open, and she could see that, that several pages were filled with notes. Nearby were several half-burnt scrapes of paper stacked underneath a burnt teacup and Klaus, that Klaus was using for paperweight. And all of the contents of the refrigerator were being laid out in a careful half-circle. The jar of mustard contained all a container of olives, three jars of jam, and the very and very fresh dill. A small glass jug containing one pickle, and the bottom. I know. Could do you mind? We're recording in here. Too many Christmas. The small glass jug contained one pickle, and the bottom of the lemon juice were off to one side. This is some of the most difficult research I've ever done. Klaus said, sitting next to his notebook. Notebook. Justice Strauss's legal library was confusing, and Aunt Josephine's grammatical library was dull but the ruined vfd library is a much bigger challenge even if i know what book i'm looking for it may be nothing but ashes did you find anything about verbal fridge dialogue <gasps> quickly <sighs> sitting beside them not at first klaus said but the scrap of paper that led to the refrigerator was in a large pile of ashes and it looked it took a while to sift through it 
but I finally found one page that was probably from the same book. He reached in his notebook and held it up with the flashlight, held up the flashlight so that he could see the pages. The page was so delicate, he said, that I immediately copied it into a commonplace book. It explains how the whole code works. Read it to us, Klaus, Violet said, and Klaus complied, a word here which means followed Violet's suggestion and read a very complicated paragraph out loud, explaining it as he went along. The verbal fridge dialogue, he read, is an emergency communication system that avails, it avails itself of the more esto, est, wait, esoteric products in the refrigerator. Volunteers will know such a code is being used by the presence of very fur. He looked up from his notebook. The sentence it ends there, he said, but I assume that that very fur is the beginning of very fresh dill. If it's if very fresh dill is in the refrigerator, then that means that there's a message too. I understand that part, Violet said, but what does esoteric mean? In this case, Klaus said, I think it's referring to things that aren't used very much. The things that stay in the refrigerator for a long time. Like the mustard and the jam and things like that, Violet said. I understand. The receiver of the message should find his or her initials as the noted one by the, our poet volunteers as follows. Klaus continued, and then there's a short poem. The darkest of the jams of three contains within the addressee. It's a couplet, Quigley said, like my sister writes. I don't think your sister wrote that particular poem, Violet said. This code was probably invented before your sister was born. That's what I thought, Klaus said, but it made me wonder who taught Isadora about the couplets. They might have been, it might have been a volunteer. Well, she had a poetry teacher when she was young, Quigley said, but I never met him. I always, I always had cart, cartography classes. And your mapping skills, Violet said, led us to these headquarters. And your investigating skills, Klaus said, allowed you to climb up to Mount Frat. And your research in, wait, uh, and your researching skills are helping us now, Violet said, as if we're being trained for all of this and we didn't even know it. I never thought of learning about maps was training, Quigley said. I just liked it. Well, I haven't been much, I haven't had much training in poetry, Klaus said, but the couplets seem to say that inside of the darkest jar of jam is the name of the person who's supposed to get us a message. Violet looked down at the three jams of jar. There's apricot, strawberry, and boysenberry, she said. Boysenberry is the darkest. Klaus nodded and unscrewed the cap from the jar of boysenberry jam. Look inside, he said, and shined a flashlight so that Violet could see. Someone had taken a knife and written in two letters of the jam. J.S. J.S., Quigley said out loud. Jock Snicket. The message can't be Jock Snicket, he said. Violet said he's dead. But whoever wrote the message didn't doesn't know that, Klaus said. And if he continued to read from the commonplace, if necessary dialogue is cured, fruit-based fruit calendar from the days of the week in order to announce the gathering. Sunday is represented by a loan. Here, it is cut off again. But I think that it means that these olives are encoded a way of communicating which day of the week gathering will take place. And Sunny will be Sunny. Sunday being olive, being one olive, Monday being two, and so on. How many olives are in the container? Quigley asked. Five, Klaus said, wrinkling his nose. I didn't, I didn't like counting them. Ever since squal the squalors fixed us on aquas martinis, the taste of an olive hasn't really appealed to me. 
five olives means Thursday, Violet said. Today's Friday, Quigley said. The gathering of the volunteers is less than a week away. The two Baudelaire's nodded in agreement and Cox opened the notebook back up again. Any spice-based condiment, he read, should have a code label referring volunteers to encoded poems. I don't think I understand, Quigley said. Klaus sighed and reached for the jar of mustard. <sighs> this is where it really gets complicated. Mustard is a spice-based condiment, according to the code. It should refer us to the poem of some sort. Well, how can mustard refer us to a poem, Violet said. Klaus smiled. I was puzzled for a long time, he said, but I finally thought to look through the list of ingredients. Listen to this. Vinegar, mustard seed, salt, turmeric, the final quatrain of the 11th stanza of the Garden of Prosperpine, by Allegron Charles Swinburne and calcium disodium, an allergy, an allegedly natural preservative. Quarantine, a quarant, a what? A quatrain is four lines of a poem, and a stanza is another word for a verse. They hide in the preference of the poem in the list of the ingredients. It's a perfect place to hide something, Violet said. No one ever reads a list of ingredients carefully. But did you find the poem? Klaus frowned and lifted the teacup. Underneath a burnt wooden sign marked poetry, I found a pile of papers that were burned practically beyond recognition, he said. But here's the one surviving scrap. It's the last quatrain of the 11th stanza, The Garden of Prosperpine. No, Prosperpine. Pros, oh, Proserpine by, sorry, it's a cutoff word, Proserpine by Algaron Charles Swinburne. That's convenient, Quigley said. It's a little too convenient, Klaus said. The entire library was destroyed, and the one poem that survived is the one we need? It can't be a coincidence. He held out the scrap of paper and Violet, so Violet and Klaus could see it. It's as if someone knew we'd be looking for it. What does the quatrain say, Violet said. It's not very cheerful, Klaus said, and, it's t and he tilted the flashlight so that he could read it. That no life lives forever, that dead men rise up never, that even the weariest river winds somewhere safe to see. The children shivered and moved so that they were sitting even closer together on the ground. It had grown darker, and Klaus's flashlight was practically the only one, the only one thing that they could see. If you ever found yourself sitting in darkness with a flashlight, you may have experienced the feeling that someone, something is lurking just beyond the circle of that light, of light that a flashlight makes. And reading a poem about a dead man is not a good way to make yourself feel better. I wish Isadora were here, Quigley said. She could tell us all about what the poem means. Even the weariest rivers wind somewhere safe to see, Bella repeated. Do you think that that refers to the last safe place? I don't know, Klaus said. I couldn't find anything else that would help us. What about the lemon juice, Violet asked, and the pickle? Klaus shook his head, although his sister could scarcely see him in the dark. There might not be any more to the message, he said, but it's all gone up in smoke. We couldn't, I couldn't find anything more in the library that seemed helpful. Violet looked at the scrap of paper from her brother and looked at the quatrain. There's something very faint here, she said. Something written in pencil, but it's too faint to read. Quigley reached into his backpack. I forgot we have two flashlights, he said, and shone the second one onto the paper. Sure enough, 
there was one word written in very faint pencil beside the last four lines of the poem, poem's 11th stanza. Violet Klaus and Quigley leaned in as far as they could to see as fast no far as they could to see what it was. The night winds rustled a fragile paper and made the children shiver, shaking the flashlight. But at the last, at last, shone on the quatrain, and they could see what the word was: sugar bowl. They said in unison and looked at each other. What could that mean? Klaus said. Violet sighed. When we were hiding underneath the car, she said to Quigley, one of those villains said something about searching for the sugar bowl, remember? Quigley nodded and took out his purple notebook. Jacques Snicket mentioned a sugar bowl once, he said, when we were at Dr. Montgomery's library. He said that it was very important to find. I wrote that down at the top of the page in my compliance book so that I could add any information that I learned about its whereabouts. He held up the page so that the two Baudelaire's could see that it was blank. I never learned any, I never learned anything anymore, he said. Klaus sighed. It seems that the more we learn, the more mysteries we find. We reached VFD headquarters and decoded a message, and all we know that is that there's one last safe place, and the volunteers are gathered here on Thursday. Volunteers are gathering there on Thursday. That might be enough, Violet said. If Sunny finds out where that safe place is, if Sunny finds out where that safe place is, but how are we going to get Sunny all the way from uh, away from Count Olaf? Klaus said. With your assisted fort climbing shoes, Quigley said we can climb up there again and sneak Sunny away. Violet shook her head. The moment they noticed Sunny's gone, she said they would find us. And Mount Frot, and from Mount Frot, they can see everything and everyone for miles and miles. We're hopelessly outnumbered. That's true, Quigley admitted. There are ten villains up there and only four of us. Then how are we going to rescue her? Olaf has has someone we love, Klaus said thoughtfully. If we had something he loves, we could trade it for Sunny in return. What does Count Olaf want? What does Count Olaf love? Money, Violet said. Fire, Quigley said. We don't have any money, Klaus said, and Olaf won't trade Sunny for fire. There must be something he really loves, something that makes him happy and would make him very unhappy if it were taken away. Violet and Quigley looked at each other and smiled. Count Olaf loves Esme Squalor. Violet said, if we were holding Esme Squalor prisoner, we could arrange a trade. That's true, Klaus said, but we're not holding Esme prisoner. We could take her as a prisoner, take her prisoner, Quigley said, and everyone was quiet. Taking someone prisoner, of course, was a villainous thing to do, and when you think of doing a villainous thing, even if you have a very good reason for thinking of doing it, it can make you feel like a villain, too. Lately, the Baudelaire's had been doing lots of things like wearing disguises and helping burn down a carnival and being and beginning to feel more like villains well, more like villains themselves. But is this two forty seven okay. But Violet and Klaus had never done anything as villainous as taking somebody as prisoner. And they looked at, Qu- at Qu- Quigley. And as they looked at Quigley, they could tell that he felt just as uncomfortable, sitting in the dark and thinking up a villainous plan. How would we do it? Klaus asked quietly. We could lure her to us, Violet said, and trap her. Quigley wrote, Quigley wrote something on his commonplace book. We could use the verdant flammable device, he said. Esme thinks that they're cigarettes. And by the time she thinks cigarettes are in, and she thinks cigarettes are in, if we lit some of them, she might smell smoke and come down here. 
But then what, Klaus said. Violet shivered in, in the cold and reached into her pocket. Her fingers bumped against the large bread knife, which she had almost forgotten was there, and then found what she was looking for. She took the ribbon out of her pocket and tied up her hair to keep it out of her eyes. The eldest Baudelaire scarcely could, could scarcely believe that she was using her inventing skills to think up a trap. The easiest trap to build, she said, is a pit. We could dig a deep hole and cover it up with some of this half-burned wood so Esme couldn't see it. The wood has been weakened by the fire, so if she steps on it, then Violet did not finish her sentence, but... By the glow of the flashlight, she could see that Klaus and Quigley were both nodding. Hunters have used trap like that for, traps like that for centuries, Klaus said, to capture wild animals. It doesn't make me feel any better, said Violet. Oh, it doesn't make me feel any better, said Violet. How could we dig such a pit, Quigley said. Well, Violet said, we don't really have any tools and we probably don't we probably have to use our hands. As the pit got deeper, we'd have to use something to carry away the dirt. <sighs> I still have the picture, Klaus said, and we don't need a w- and we don't need a way to make that make sure that we don't get trapped ourselves. Violet said, "I have a rope." Quigley said, "In my backpack, we could tie one end one end to the archway and use it to climb out." Violet reached her hands down on the ground. The dirt was very cold but quite loose, and she saw that she could dig a pit without too much trouble. Is this the right thing to do? Violet asked. Do you think that this is what our parents would do? Our parents aren't here, Klaus said. They might, have, they might have been here once, but they're not here now. The children were quiet again and tried to think as best as they could in the cold and dark. Deciding on the right thing to do in the situation a bit like this is like deciding the right thing to wear to a party. It is easy to decide on the wrong thing to wear to a party, such as a deep-sea diving equipment or a large pillow. Or, or a pair of large pillows, but deciding on what is right is much trickier. It might seem right to wear a navy blue suit, for instance, but when you arrive there, it could be several other people wearing the same thing, and you could end up being, and you could end up being cuffed due to a case of mistaken identity. It might seem right to wear your favorite pair of shoes, but there could be a sudden flood at the party, and your shoes would be ruined. It might seem right to wear a suit of armor to the party, but there could be several people wearing the same thing, and you could end up being caught in the flood due to a case of mistaken identity and find yourself drifting into sea, wishing that you had ended up wearing a deep-sea diving equipment after all. The truth is that you can never be sure if you have to decide on the right thing to until the party is over, but by then, it's too late to go home and change your mind, which is why the world is filled with people doing terrible things and wearing ugly clothing. And so few volunteers who are able to stop them. I don't know if this is the right thing to do, Violet said. But Count Olaf captured Sonny and we might have to capture someone else, someone else to stop him. Klaus nodded. Well, we'll fight fire with fire. He, uh, we, we'll fight fire, he said, with fire. When we'd better, well, then we better get started, Quigley said and stood up. Yeah, well, that's the only way they're going to get their sister back. When the sun rises, we can light the verdant flammable device with the mirror again, as we did when we were signaling Sunny. And if we want the pit to be ready by dawn, Violet said, we'll have to dig all night. Where should we put the pit? Klaus said. In front of the entrance, Violet decided. Then we can hide beneath the arch when Esme approaches. How will we know when she's fallen in, Quigley asked, if we can't see her? We'll hear her, Violet replied. We'll hear the breaking of wood 
Esme might scream. And Esme might scream. Klaus shuddered. That's not going to be a pleasant sound. Well, we're not in a pleasant situation, Violet said. And the eldest Baudelaire was right. It was not pleasant to kneel down in front of the ruined library entrance and dig the ashes of dirt with their bare hands by the light of two flashlights for all f- as all four drafts of the valley blew around them. It was not pleasant for Violet and her brother to carry the dirt away in their pitcher while Quigley had tied his rope to the iron archway so that they could climb up. They could climb in and out as the pit grew bigger and deeper like an enormous dark mouth opening wider and wider to swallow them whole. It was not even pleasant to pause and eat a carrot to help them with their energy or to gaze at the shiny white shape of the frozen waterfall oh, as yeah, it glinted. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. As it glinted in the moonlight, imagining Esme Squalor lured by the smoke of the verdant flammable device. Wait, what happens if they run out of carrots? Well, I think they're going to be hungry. Uh, devices approaching and ruin the headquarters to become their prisoner. But the least pleasant part of the situation wasn't the cold dirt or the freezing winds or even their own exhaustion as it grew later and later and the children dug deeper and deeper. The least pleasant part was the idea they shared by the two Baudelaire's and their new friend that might that they might be doing a villainous thing. The siblings were not sure if digging a deep trap, digging a deep pit to trap somebody in order to trade prisoners with the villain was something that their parents would say parents or any other volunteers would do but with so many of vfd secrets lost in their ashes it was impossible to know for sure and this is uncertainly this uncertainly this uncertainty haunted them with every pitch full of dirt pitcher full of dirt in every climb to the top of the rope and every piece of weakened wood that they laid on top of the pit and hid from view as the first rays of the morning sun appeared on the misty horizon of the el- the elder Baudelaire gazed up at the waterfall and the summit of the Mortmain Mountains, they knew it was a gr- they knew it was a group of villains from whom Sonny was help- hopefully learning the location of the last safe place. But as Violet and Klaus lowered their gaze on their handiwork, it looked at the dark it looked at the dark deep pit. Oh, Anne looked at the dark deep pit Quigley had Quigley had helped them dig. They could not help wondering if they were also in a group of villains at the top of the slippery slope. As they looked at the villainous thing that they had made, the three volunteers could not help but wondering if they were villains too. And this was the least pleasant feeling in the world. What do you think? Are they villains? No. I don't think so either. Honestly, like, live your life, dudes. Live your life, my dude. You gotta save your baby sismeister. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. Okay? Okay, babe. Okay? That's all I'm saying. Okay.